Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison. Today we have Edward Abrahams, the president of the Personalized Medicine Coalition. The PMC represents the precision medicine community, which includes innovators, scientists, patients, providers, payers. Edward, thank you for joining us on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the interview. Absolutely. We met before, but Karen, our producer, and I attended your conference, the Personalized Medicine Conference that you have each year at the Harvard Medical School. Before we kind of get into a lot of questions about your op-ed that you wrote in Stat News, tell us about your background and how the vision to create the PMC was birthed. Well, the Personalized Medicine Coalition was created in 2003, just after the human genome had been mapped. It's based on the assumption that the science alone wasn't going to lead to a paradigm change in the way medicine is developed and delivered. We estimated that we had to pay close attention to the space between the science and the patient if personalized medicine was to replace one-size-fits-all trial-and-error medicine. And so back in 2003, a group of institutions across the spectrum of healthcare came together and said, what do we need to do to make this happen more quickly than it might otherwise? And they decided then to focus on things like regulation, reimbursement, incentives, privacy, and other public policy challenges that could either stifle or stimulate the development of personalized medicine. And since that time, we have grown from the original 20 members to today, we're over 220. And we have an active agenda that focuses really on three things, raising the profile of personalized medicine and the knowledge that most Americans have never heard of it and don't understand it. Second, creating a friendlier economic and political environment for its development. And finally, developing the evidence for providers and payers that personalized medicine works and can help address many of the problems we face in our healthcare system. So it's been an interesting ride over these past 15 years. I see that the PMC, my experience was, it's very much a think tank that promotes the understanding and adoption of personalized medicine concepts. And back when you mentioned when you started in 2003, 2004, personalized medicine in large part was a concept. There wasn't many targeted therapies. There weren't many tests that that really helped them facilitate ways to personalize medicine, especially for cancer patients. But, you know, over that time, how has the conversation changed from when you started talking about it as a concept? And today it's, it's still a concept to many patients, but, you know, how has the conversation been able to change? 
Well, I think that's a great question. And of course, as you know, there has been a remarkable evolutionary progress, especially in the number of therapies that are personalized. So for example, last year, 42% of all the drugs FDA approved were personalized medicines. That is, they have biomarker strategies in their labels. But you're right. It is a concept, the idea that we're going to move from one size fits all to one that's targeted to patients based upon their molecular profiles is still more a challenge than a reality. Although, uh, as I just noted, and as you noted in your question, there are many, many more examples today than there were 15 years ago of where, uh, especially in oncology, where uh, medicine is targeted based upon a patient's molecular profile. And I should also add that our definition of personalized medicine includes the patient's values, circumstances, and history. So when you bring all these things together, you can get personalized medicine. And if I may say so, this is what most patients want. We know exactly what you're saying with the evolution of the concept into concrete therapies, into you know, real tests that can help physicians select or deselect treatments that are likely to benefit the patient or not. And on that point, many voices that are looking at this industry are talking about how expensive the drugs are. And you wrote an editorial in Stat News because President Trump announced he's going to issue an executive order to lower the cost of the drugs that at least the government pays for to a preferred nation status. And, you know, he goes on and, and talks about how other countries are paying less for the same drugs that, that we do here in the States. And you wrote a pretty compelling editorial in Stat News in response to that. And I guess the first question I have is, I guess, why do patients in the U.S. pay more? Because I guess he's not wrong, right? That, 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 that's true. But I don't think that uh, President Trump or congressional leaders who are thinking about how to lower pharmaceutical prices are thinking also about personalized medicine. I think they're assuming that the progress that we have had and that we anticipate is going to happen no matter what they do. And our contention is, of course, they need to pay attention to the unintended consequences of, say, tying pharmaceutical prices to the lowest price in Europe without thinking through exactly what that would mean. But to your question of do U.S. patients pay more for drugs, yes, they do. And the reason for that is that we are alone in the world and not negotiating prices with a governmental entity. As a matter of fact, Medicare prohibits that in the United States. So many feel that we shouldn't pay more for our medicines than, say, other developed countries in Europe. The problem is, or the challenge is, by so doing, we preserve innovation in the United States, and we also make access to new medicines more likely to happen here than elsewhere. And finally, we've also developed an extraordinarily strong pharmaceutical industry, which benefits patients in the long run. But these are the conundrums that President Trump wants to address. My fear is, of course, he's using a sledgehammer when a scalpel would be the recommended instrument. Yeah. You know, when talking about that, like you said, there, there's many ramifications to just kind of going in and, and slashing 
cost of, of drugs. And what would this policy, if it were to be enacted, have? What impact would it have on the precision medicine industry? Well, we fear that it could, I mean, not to be melodramatic about it, but wipe it out because it would push the pharmaceutical industry back into a paradigm where one size fits all. And they would seek then to develop, as they did in the past, drugs that would fit for everybody. You can hope to sell one to everybody on the planet, uh, even though the science has pushed us away from that. And there are diminishing returns in the past 10 years in developing innovative products that address unmet medical needs. So we're moving because we're following the science, which is based upon an understanding of individual variation in a particular direction. And if we employ some of these policies that have been recommended, we're not going to have access to the medicines of the future. Now, you noted that in the public mind, personalized medicines are likely to cost more. And that is more or less true. However, what we contend is because they're also more effective and because they're also targeted at smaller populations, they will serve the purpose of making medicine more efficient, which over time will reduce costs because paying for medicines that don't work, which we do now because we prescribe the same thing to everybody, whether they need it or not, whether it's good for them or not, there are deep costs in doing that. And the goal here, the goal of personalized medicine is to provide better clinical outcomes and make the system more efficient. And that's what we believe policymakers should keep their eye on. And I would be the first to argue that this is an afterthought in the current debate. And one of the goals of the Personalized Medicine Coalition is to raise this in the public mind so that we would consider the implications of doing dumb stuff. I, th I think that's what President Obama said. Don't do dumb stuff. Don't do dumb stuff. <laughs> it, is, it is poignant and, and profound, <laughs> even those few words. <laughs> you know, I'll never forget the words of Dan Von Hoff years ago when he's talking about, you know, precision medicine coming forward. And, you know, he said, you know, the most expensive drug is the one that doesn't work. That's right. I didn't know that was attributed to him, but that's, that's exactly right. That's kind of where I've heard it. In that point, though, many politicians and, of course, payers focus on the sticker price of these targeted agents, these immunotherapies for shock value, you know. But you make an interesting point in your editorial about the cost of not having these innovative therapies. There's a perfect example that you mentioned, a drug indicated for spinal muscular atrophy, for an example. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, up until six months ago, this drug didn't exist, and it treats 25,000 patients who have a terrible muscular illness where their muscles decay over a short amount of time. And with a gene therapy, we can arrest that, and these children can live normal lives. Now, the cost, the sticker cost of that drug is very high at over $2 million, which is scary for payers and anybody who looks at it, they tend to overlook the value of the drug. Our argument is look at the value and consider the costs that will not occur because the drug exists, meaning the downstream cost of treating the illness ineffectively. And it is estimated that cost is over $5 million. So 
when you put these things together, you're looking at a value proposition. And our view is if we want more drugs like that, we cannot disincentivize their development by focusing exclusively on cost and overlooking value. Yeah, and some of the narrative has been over the years that it's expensive to treat these diseases, inpatient, outpatient services, the comorbidities that that may occur. But in this particular case for this target gene therapy, this is a cure. You know, it's one dose, it's over $2 million, but it's a cure. But you, but exactly what you mentioned, if you treat the disease for these particular you know, babies who are born with this gene defect, if they live beyond five years, you're in for over $5 million of, of treatment and still being affected by the disease. That's right. And also, it's important to note that cell and gene therapies are in their infancy, and you wouldn't want to do anything to to stifle their development at a critical moment. So we nearly need to be careful about what kind of policies we put in place right now and should avoid the hysteria that I'm afraid has affected both Democrats and Republicans about this the cost of pharmaceutical prices, which is more related to uh, the insurance issue than it is to the advertised cost of drugs. Now, the PMC is located in in Washington, D.C. Do you guys advocate on the Hill for policy? Yes. Thank you, Jerome. As a matter of fact, we're organizing as we speak a personalized medicine caucus on Capitol Hill, which will be a font of information about these and other issues. So there is a great deal of interest in personalized medicine. I I just think the issue is that not many people truly understand its revolutionary implications and how it can reshape medicine in the future. And that if they did understand it, they'd be more supportive. So we're working hard to raise the profile of uh, personalized or precision medicine. And one of the ways we're doing that is to organize this caucus on uh, Capitol Hill. Well, we hope that helps shape the conversation about how we value precision medicine diagnostics because, I mean, it's kind of the the circular argument for years. I mean, the payers wouldn't pay for the testing. Without the testing, you can't, you know, accurately customize or personalize therapy without that information. And the testing is relatively inexpensive, but without the evidence of its uh, clinical and uh, economic utility, payers don't want to pay for it. And, and so it's expensive to develop that evidence, but it is necessary. And that's one of the things that the Personalized Medicine Coalition argues for. Yeah. And you mentioned in the editorial that we need you know, better methodologies for assessing the value of precision medicine diagnostics. What, what would be an example or, or an idea of that? Our concern is some of the the uh, value assessments are static. That is, they don't look at the drug over time, nor do they consider individual variation. That is to say that the drug or the therapy that they're evaluating will have differential response across a population. And that if you use a, a population average, as NICE usually does, in the UK, uh, you're, like, you're likely to not want to pay for medicines uh, that are targeted at subpopulations and therefore may cost more but be more effective. And so we think the value assessment frameworks need to be much more sophisticated than they are. 
but we are proponents of using them because otherwise there would be little way to evaluate the value of innovative new medicines. So I think that's very important. The work you guys do at the PMC is very unique and, and extremely impactful. And, you know, if there is a leader who can, you know, shape that, it's you. I mean, you do have your PhD. You've done work in in politics and in fundraising at academic centers. My goodness, Ted. I mean, tell me about your background. What did you get your PhD in and how did you evolve to, you know, shaping policy? My, I, <laughs> thanks, thanks for the question. My background is in public policy and public affairs. Uh, I, I had worked on Capitol Hill for about 10 years in science policy and healthcare, et cetera. And this was a natural evolution to want to create something new that didn't exist. And that's what we what PMC actually is. I hasten to add, we're not a trade association. We represent multiple business models, unlike trade associations. And we want to create something that's innovative and that works especially for patients. And our contention is that we have to share value across the healthcare spectrum. They have to create what we consider win-win situations rather than a zero-sum game that so often characterizes how Washington works. That is to say, you know, the payers win, the manufacturers lose. We don't look at it like that. We want the manufacturers and the payers and providers to come together to do what's right to move us from one size fits all to one where medicines are targeted to whom they will work. And what's interesting is the science is pointing us in this direction. And the science, as many people, including uh, Scott Gottlieb, have noted, has never been more promising. And so our contention is, you know, don't do dumb stuff. <laughs> well, I tell you, you, you guys speak about collaboration, we here at Trapello want to lead the conversation on how payers, providers, and of course, laboratories can come together. Well, Jerome, I think you have led the conversation and uh, my hat's off to you for organizing these podcasts and providing leaders an opportunity to share their views. I'm hopeful that uh, many people, uh, including you, will join us at Harvard Medical School in mid-November when we will think about all of these issues and try to pose solutions to them. Well, I know I'll be there. So for those listeners out there who are taking this in, how can they get connected to the PMC? How can they find more information about the Personalized Medicine Conference? Our website is uh, personalizedmedicinecoalition.org. You can access our conference there and learn more about us. I would also say that uh, if you'd like to join, please connect to me via the website and uh, would welcome a conversation about your needs and how we can help. And as always, you can look on the page at precisionmedicinepodcast.com where we'll have those links to not only the op-ed that Edward wrote on Stat News, but also information to get connected to the PMC and the conference. Well, thank you very much, Jerome. I really appreciate this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on and sharing with us. They can also listen to uh, Christopher Wells' episode on the podcast as well. Okay. So thank you, Karen. So we connected with Chris. He did a phenomenal just job welcoming us and orienting us to 
the conference and he came on and was a guest early on when we launched. So we thank all you guys for all the work you've done and for helping us build this podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, you're, you're a very important part of our coalition. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on and sharing with us on the Precision Medicine Podcast. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.